This morning we are in Revelation again, uh, covering chapters 17 and 19, which have already been read for you throughout the service. This is another complete cycle of visions, which John saw after the seven bowls cycle. Now remember, as Greg Beale says, throughout Revelation, the phrase after these things, or I would add connectors like then, or after this, or whatever, these indicate the sequential order in which John saw the visions, and not necessarily the order of the events they depict. So the, chap- the events described in chapters 17 and 19 do not necessarily happen chronologically after the events of the previous cycle, namely the bowls. Rather, in the cyclical understanding of Revelation, the events in 17 to 19 were seen in visions by John after what happened, after what John saw in chapters 15 and 16. But as a new cycle, they actually repeat and covered the same period of time that was covered in chapters 15 and 16 and in all the previous cycles before that. In support of this view, we have chapter 19 ending in more or less the same way as the seven bowls cycle came to an end. In chapter 16, the sixth and seventh bowls have the kings of the whole world assembling themselves together for battle at that place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon, Revelation 16 and verse 16. They are defeated there and they are made to drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath, Revelation 16 and verse 19. Now at the end of chapter 19, we read that John, quote, saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Revelation 19.19. And what happens? Jesus is described as he who, quote, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 19.15. And so from the perspective of those who including myself, who interpret Revelation according to the cyclical view. We do not have two different events, one at the end of chapter 16 and one at the end of chapter 19. Rather, we have 16 bringing one cycle to a close, and then 17 and 19 beginning a new cycle, which portrays the same substance of things from a different angle, so to speak, like a sports replay. And then 19 concludes in the same way as the previous cycle with the great battle which Jesus wins. The big idea of today's passage is that Jesus wins the conflict between himself and the kings of the earth and his enemies lose. That's the overall thrust of chapters 17 to 19, isn't it? The fall of Babylon, the defeat of the beast and the prophet and the kings of the earth and the victory of Jesus. If I can put it this way, this is the view from 30,000 feet, from an airplane window, so to speak. As we look down at 17 and 19, these are the basic contours of what we see here in these chapters. We will organize the sermon today under the metaphors of zooming in closer and closer from 30,000 feet all the way down to ground level. So our, our first major heading is going to be the view of these chapters from an airplane window. The second 
main heading of our sermon today is going to be the view of these chapters from Google Maps, as it were. Right? And we, you know, you turn on the satellite view and you can kind of see better than you can see from an airplane window, but you're still not at street view. And then third, pictures or video taken with a cell phone at ground level. Okay, this is basically what we're going to try to do. Start with the general and move towards some specific application to our lives. So let's begin with our first point. The view of Revelation 17 to 19 from an airplane window, so to speak. As I already said, this gives us the main idea of this passage. Jesus wins the conflict between himself and the kings of the earth who gather themselves together against him. And his enemies lose. The kings of the earth are real, legitimate kings appointed by God. Right? Joe Biden, Mia Motley, Justin Trudeau, whoever else. Right? These are real, legitimate kings appointed by God. God knows they are often wicked and ungodly. And yet, what does he say in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1? There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, who did these guys get their authority from, and who has instituted them as governors in their respective jurisdictions? God. So, we ought to obey them in all things that we may obey them in without disobeying Christ. But there is a day coming when they will answer for their wickedness. There is a day coming when they will appear before a higher court, so to speak. And they will stand before he who Revelation 19.16 calls King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The kingdoms of this earth are really something viewed from one angle. It's, in a sense, impressive and big and mighty and, and powerful. Imagine trying to carry out a coup d'etat and take over a small country, even like Barbados, let alone a larger country like the United States. Imagine over lunch, we just decided, you know what, enough of this, right? Just imagine the gargantuan task that we would have before us of just trying to take over Barbados, for example, which is, frankly, just a small country. These kingdoms and these kings are bigger than any one of us. And we often feel overwhelmed at their wickedness and their oppression and their suppression of the truth and righteousness. But listen here, you know who doesn't feel overwhelmed about what is happening in this world politically right now? Jesus. Just as God's plan involved Joseph's wicked brothers way back in Genesis, who sold him into slavery, and he eventually ended up in Egypt and became the right-hand man to Pharaoh. Just as God's plan involved a Judas, who was a human instrument leading to Christ's crucifixion, so God has planned and purposed to use all the earthly kings and governors for the ultimate good of His people and for the glory of His name. And listen, when the time is right, Jesus will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, as prophesied in Psalm 2 and reiterated in Revelation 19 and verse 15. When the time is right, Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God 
the Almighty. God sees the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him, who is sitting on the horse and against his army, as Revelation 19, 19 puts it. And if I can allude back to Psalm 2, he just laughs. And says, as it were, my son is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Babylon is used symbolically in Revelation to represent the power of the earthly kingdom and its distorted opposition to Christ. Human government is not a distortion of the way God has ordained things to be. The way humans govern is a distortion of the way things are intended to be. Human authorities ought to recognize that they are under God. They are merely stewards entrusted with some jurisdiction over this world. But many kings symbolized by Babylon in Revelation are like stewards who have begun to act like the kingdom is theirs. So we we might remember any of the movies or books that have been written about Robin Hood. We might think of Prince John, who is a mere steward but acts like the kingdom is his while King Richard is away at war. We might think of Lord Denethor, steward of Gondor, who has begun to act as if Gondor is his while Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is away. Listen, Babylon is impressive in its own way. And it's too mighty for the peasants to resist or overthrow or frankly even to reform. But Revelation 17 to 19 portrays for us the return of the king. Babylon falls. Jesus wins. The rightful king takes rule. As we read in Revelation 11:15 which, according to the cyclical view, also corresponds to this passage. The seventh trumpet sounds, and the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This is where history is going in the big picture. This is the view from 30,000 feet, as it were. What is the ultimate fate of Babylon? Babylon falls. What about Jesus and His kingdom? Jesus wins. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords puts all his enemies under his feet. This is something that we've seen over and over again in Revelation. This is not a point I think I need to belabor, so let me leave that point there. Let's look now a little more closely at the text and take in the view of Revelation 17 to 19 from Google Maps, so to speak. If you've ever seen a map on a computer or tablet or phone or whatever, like Google Maps, you know that it contains a more detailed view than from an airplane. You can even put it on satellite mode and see real satellite pictures of roofs and houses and uh, cars on the road, etc., etc. And yet it's not down to the nitty-gritty detail of what color shirt people are wearing or anything like that. Let us, therefore, see a little more detail than simply that Babylon falls and Jesus wins. And I'd like to point out a few things 
which are driving toward our application this morning, which we will come to. A few things which all pertain to the character of Babylon and her evil alliances. First of all, Revelation 17 and verse 5 tells us that the woman in the vision is a personification of Babylon. It says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now we should know that there is a sense in which she, Babylon, is repulsive. And yet, at the same time, a sense in which she, Babylon, is seductive or compelling. She is described as riding a beast that was full of blasphemous, blasphemous names. And she has a cup with abominations and impurities in it. Revelation 17, verses 3 and 4. Moreover, she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is part of the description that we get of her. If you have any modicum of morality and propriety, even if you're not a Christian, you should already be repulsed by the description of this woman. A cup with abominations and impurities in it is nasty. Right? And, and a woman who is drunk, intoxicated with the blood of innocent victims who did not deserve to die, but whom she has massacred anyway. That's just evil. Whatever religious group they belong to. So, really, everyone should already be repulsed by this woman, based on the description that I just read for you. And yet, look how people flock to her. The kings of the earth commit sexual immorality with her. And the earth dwellers are drunk on her sexual immorality. It's the beginning of 17. And in chapter 18, kings and merchants and sailors mourn over her fall. Apparently, the purple and the scarlet, the gold, the jewels, and the pearls make up for the putrid abominations and impurities. Apparently, the golden cup sufficiently masks or outweighs the abominations and impurities inside. And so the world goes after her. There is something revolting about her, but there is also apparently something seductive about her. In fact, look how even the Apostle John momentarily marvels at her in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. Which is the same way that people are described in chapter 13. Listen from chapter 13, quote, The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. It's the same Greek word. John is not above making religious mistakes as he sees these visions. We're under no obligation to defend him as if he must be innocent. When we talk about saints... We're not talking about those who are sinlessly perfect. We're talking about those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and belong to Christ Jesus. Consider how also in Revelation chapter 19.10, John is about to worship an angel. 
before he is rebuked. John is just a man who needs Jesus like the rest of us. He's an apostle of Christ. He has a good measure of godly maturity. And yet it seems here that John has this same feeling, at least initially and momentarily, towards this woman as the people have in chapter 13 who follow the beast. There's this marveling, whatever that means. There is some sort of positive disposition in chapter 13 towards marveling and following the beast. And when John sees this woman, he marvels. It seems that even momentarily, John falls prey to some extent to her seduction. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that John followed the beast or that John was ultimately on the side of the woman in this vision that he sees. John is clearly on Jesus' team. But I'm highlighting this to show that even Christians, even Christians may feel the illogical and yet compelling pull towards Babylon. She is the one who is drunk on our blood. Why would we go after her? Her cup is full of abominations and impurities. Why would we go after her? Well, the cup is gold. (laughs) And look, she has purple and scarlet and jewels and pearls. It's illogical, isn't it? And yet there is this compelling seduction of the world, which may be a temptation even to Christians. Therefore, we must be careful if we think we stand, lest we fall. For to give ourselves over to Babylon is indeed to fall. She is described in 17.3 as dwelling in a wilderness. For as Joel Beakey puts it, quote, She promises you so much pleasure and satisfaction, but in the end you will be doomed to live with her in a barren, hostile wilderness. A dry, thirsty land where there is no water. Psalm 63, verse 1. There's a mixing of metaphors, isn't there, here? Because she's seated upon many waters, and yet she's also seen to be in a wilderness. And this is the, this is the irony, that there is a sense in which she waters, and that yet there is a sense in which she cannot quench any thirst at all. And she is a dry, barren land. Beaky goes on in his commentary to cite Robert Pollock as poetically describing the life of Lord Byron, who lived a self-indulgent life. Listen to this quote, put poetically, of of Byron's life. He drank every cup of joy, heard every trump of fame, drank early, drank deeply, drank drafts that common millions might have quenched. In other words, he had the share that really and truly could have belonged to millions of people, and he took it all for himself. And then he died of thirst because there was no more to drink. Beaky sums up this section of his commentary, saying that is the truth about Babylon. The the woman lives in a wilderness where everything is desolate, where you can never be filled. You drink and drink, as it were, from her cup, but you only hunger and thirst for more, and nothing satisfies. Know also that the woman and the beast that she rides and the waters that she sits on, all of which have their symbolism explained in this passage, chapter 17. Note that they have a sort of 
unholy alliance. They don't love each other, but they are united actually by that which they oppose. Like Herod and Pilate became friends over the trial of Jesus when they had previously been at enmity with one another, so the kings of the earth and the multitudes and the beast and the prophet and Babylon unite together around opposition to Jesus in Revelation 19. But there is no real love between them. Look at how they cannibalize one another in 1716. Chapter 17, verse 16. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. There is very little real love for one another in the ungodly system of things. Sometimes there's a remnant of common grace. You see pockets of love here and there. But often you will not be loved, but simply used as Babylon herself was used. Kept around as long as you are useful. And then be cannibalized by those who you thought were on your side. When it is that you throw your lot in with the beast and the prophet and Babylon and kings of the earth and so on and so forth. Don't believe me? Try converting to Jesus and living differently and speaking the truth now in your relationships. No matter how much you speak the truth in love and answer your opponents with gentleness and respect, you will find that your relationships change profoundly and in great quantity. To belong to Babylon, the beast, and the prophet, and the kings of the earth, and this whole unholy alliance is not to be truly loved in an alternative way to being truly loved by Jesus. This is what I'm trying to bring out here. There is this allying of themselves together against Jesus, but there is very little, if any, real love in this unholy alliance one for another. And everybody's jockeying and positioning and using, utilizing relationships and people for their profit, for the bottom line, for their own advancement. This is the way that life works outside of Jesus. There's nothing blessed about belonging to the enemies of Jesus. It is illogical to want to belong to them. And yet, as we see here, there is this seductive pull. There is this compelling pull that Babylon exerts, even upon Christians. Let's zoom in now, even further. We've seen the view from an airplane, so to speak. We've seen the view from Google Maps, so to speak, satellite view. Let's zoom in now even further and examine the view of Revelation 17 to 19 from pictures or video taken with a cell phone, so to speak. Hope you can understand my metaphors so they're not perfect. Coming down here to the ground to see what does all of this mean for us on the ground? We kind of see these big picture truths 
about Jesus winning and Babylon and the influence that she tries to exert and so on and so forth. What does all of this mean for us on the ground? It's one thing to know Babylon falls and Jesus wins. It's one thing to know that Babylon will have an illogical and yet seductive power over us or upon us that it will pull at our heart in spite of the fact that it's irrational for us to listen to that. But what do we do with this? In this passage, we see two responses to the described fall of Babylon. In chapter 18 and verse 2, an angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And there are two responses to this announcement. Lament and celebration. Look at how the kings of the earth respond in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 10. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon. That is a lament. They're sad about Babylon's fall. Likewise, the merchants in chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. Again, lament. They're sad about it. Now here are the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the seas in 1819. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at seas grew rich by her wealth. But look at what they add in chapter 18 and verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given you, has given judgment for you against her. So they lament, but it is presumed that heaven will rejoice. They lament, but it is presumed that the saints and the apostles and the prophets will rejoice. Listen here. When Babylon is thrown down, Will you miss the lewdness and the lasciviousness of CD shows on Netflix, Facebook Reels, and YouTube Shorts, and so on and so forth, the debauchery of Grand Kadumit? Will you miss even outright pornography or fornication or adultery? Will you miss it? Alas, alas, how am I supposed to quench my lusts anymore? Will you miss drunkenness and drug-induced highs? Alas, will you miss the opportunity to manipulate and scheme to get yourself ahead? Will you miss living in a world where that is the way of things? Will you miss being able to intimidate and coerce and gaslight and control people for your own ends? Will you miss dishonest gain? 
I can go on and on. You get the point of what I'm saying. There are ways of this world that people partake in. Listen, people partake in these outside the church, and these even have a pull towards people inside the church. Look at the way, look at the way that some church leaders lead, just like the Gentiles. Scheming, manipulating, coercing. Shepherds of Israel, the prophet Ezekiel brings chastisement against them. For you feed yourself instead of feeding the sheep. Listen, this is not just a problem out there. This is a problem in here. This is a problem not just up here for me to think about. But this is a problem in the pews. This is a problem in your heart for you to think about. Will you miss the ways of this world? When Jesus comes back and wins and Babylon falls, are you going to miss it? Alas, alas, how much it is going to be disappointing to you that things have changed and that the new order of things is righteousness. Will you cry out, alas, alas, when Babylon falls? Or will you cry out with the saints, as in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2? Hallelujah. Finally, salvation and glory belongs to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of His servants. Will that be your heart disposition? Good. It's about time. I'm glad that Babylon's gone down. Come out of her, my people. We hear a voice from heaven saying in 18, in verse 4, Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. This is the primary application here in this passage. There is a real danger for Christians to get too cozy with the great prostitute. The great whore, as she's called in the King James Version. There is a sense in which we need to have dealings with the world. Even Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Look, when I said don't associate, I wasn't talking about the world. Then you need to go out of the world. There is a sense also in which it is right to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and to eat and to drink with them, as Jesus did. There is a sense also in which we have Christian liberty to enjoy the common graces of food and drink and music and sex, all within proper context, proper measure, within proper boundaries. God has given good gifts to this world, Christian and non-Christian alike, and we may partake lawfully and the good things that God has given us to enjoy. And yet, there is a sense in which we must be on guard against marveling at Babylon and following her and taking part in her sins. There is a very real sense in which we must be on guard from failing to come out from her 
and of actually, on the contrary, going into her. Look who takes part in the wedding supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 17, or pardon me, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. It is the bride of Christ, quote, who has made herself ready. As Beaky says, the man who says he belongs to Christ, and yet never lifts a finger to purify himself, is deceived. The Christian life means getting ready. It means putting off the old way of living and putting on the new. Now, of course, we know that our justifying righteousness is not our own, but Christ's. And yet, here's what the Bible teaches us. God does not grant justifying righteousness without also granting us new hearts which pursue increasing qualitative personal righteousness also. No one receives justification who is not also being sanctified. God does not grant justifying righteousness without also granting, that's the word in Revelation 19.8, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Some might say, well, well, smuggling works into our justification. Telling us that we need to believe and be righteous enough to be saved. I'm not telling you any such thing. Well, what about the thief on the cross? He never, you know, had had a chance to grow in holiness and repent of his sins and so forth. Listen here. The thief on the cross began that day by railing at Jesus, mocking Jesus, making fun of Jesus. And he ended his life rebuking the other thief and saying to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen, there was no justification even in the, even in the life of the thief on the cross without a corresponding heart change which worked itself out in his actions, if you will. The only thing he could do, which was speak, he changed. Alright, so that's a very, very poor example to say that change doesn't have to accompany justification. When people are saved... They are justified because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus and the righteousness of Christ Jesus alone. But when God gives the gift of salvation, He doesn't give it like a box that a small child receives at Christmas where some of the parts that are supposed to be in the box are there and other parts are missing. And then you have to reach out to the manufacturer and find the missing parts. That's not how it works. When when God gives the gift of salvation, all the parts that are supposed to be in the box are in the box. Which means the justifying righteousness of Jesus is there. So is a new heart which pursues increasing, growing, qualitative, personal righteousness. 
There is no one who is justified who is not also being sanctified. And then God doesn't leave us in this process, but He brings it to completion and perfects us and brings us to live with Him forever. There's no one who's going to be justified and sanctified who is not going also to be glorified. Everything that's supposed to be in the box comes in the box when God gives you a gift. So, Revelation 19 and describing those who attend the wedding supper of the Lamb is not describing how you become a Christian, but it's describing how Christians live. It's describing what Christians look like. They are clothed in righteous deeds. Throughout the scripture we find various passages which describe, which use the metaphor of clothing in different ways. In Zechariah chapter 3, God gives Joshua, the high priest who represents all the people, new clothes, an entirely new set of clothes. Takes off Joshua's dirty clothes, puts on the clean clothes. And this represents what is called imputation. That God takes off our dirty, filthy deeds and He puts on the righteous deeds of Jesus. He clothes us in the righteousness of another, Jesus. Zechariah chapter 3. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, we read about people whose clothes became clean by washing their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. This is speaking about how our sins are pardoned and forgiven and how we get a clean slate. Revelation 19 is talking about the manner in which we have lived. The manner in which these people who are now at the wedding supper of the Lamb have conducted themselves. They have been making themselves ready for this day all along. And now here they are with personal, qualitative righteousness that they have been granted from God. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8. It's still a gift. It's still something that comes from God. It's not that they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. But listen here. Salvation includes it being granted to you to make yourself ready. Salvation includes it being granted to you to be clothed in the righteous deeds which befit the saints. The scripture talks about walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received and so on and so forth. So free grace is not opposed to the idea that we actually need to obey God. Free grace is not opposed to the idea that we actually need to become more righteous. We just need to make the proper distinctions. Where, where do we find the righteousness that justifies us? We just saying, not in me. <laughs> no list of sins I have not done. Right? No separation from the world. No coming out of Babylon. None of this stuff justifies me. My righteousness is in Jesus, that song tells us. That's how it works pertaining to justification. But the scripture nowhere gives us the idea that us actually growing in righteousness is unimportant or optional or incidental and it may or may not occur depending on whether you prefer to pursue it or not. The scripture tells us that those who are justified are also going to be sanctified. So Jesus wins. Babylon falls. There's going to be this illogical pull towards Babylon. This illogical pull on our hearts. Why would we go to a woman with a cup full of abominations and impurities? Why would we go to a woman who is drunk on the blood of the saints? 
It's illogical, isn't it? But sin doesn't make sense. And because she's got a gold cup, and she's dressed in scarlet and purple, listen, we are stupid, mindlessly, like, like lemmings following off a cliff. This is the way the world goes after Babylon. And let's, look, this is a poll. Let's be real. This is a poll even on us as Christians. So we need to make sure that we come out of her and take no part in her sins. Right? We properly nuance that and balance that with the other things Scripture tells us about being loving with unbelievers and so on and so forth. But there's a real danger of us getting too cozy with Babylon. We need to come out of her. We need to make ourselves ready. We need to clothe ourselves in the righteous deeds of the saints. At the ground level, this is what we do with this this big picture overview that Babylon falls and Jesus wins. At the ground level, we say, well, then I'm out. I'm out of Babylon. (laughs) When push comes to shove, not lining up on that side of the battle lines. When push comes to shove, I'm choosing to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb rather than to be eaten by the birds of the air which will gorge themselves on the flesh of those who line up against Jesus. I choose to celebrate the downfall of Babylon rather than to lament over the downfall of Babylon. We need to look carefully and closely at our hearts and where we love, where we're cozy with Babylon, where we might feel temptation to lament. We need to extract ourselves, extricate ourselves from that coziness with Babylon and make sure it's real clear that even even if we have to be in the same room, so to speak, even if we have some dealings, even if we redemptively engage, even if we just love people who are citizens of Babylon in the realm of common grace and so on and so forth. We've got to make sure, listen, she's not my lover. And at the end of the day, I know to whom I am betrothed. And I'm not going into Babylon. I'm coming out of her. I'm out.